Hello and welcome to the Social Market Foundation podcast, bringing you news, views and expertise from Britain's leading centrist think tank. I'm James Kirkup, director of the SMF. Before I came to this job, I was a political journalist at Westminster, where I used to spend my time talking to politicians, experts and insiders about politics and policy. And now I'm going to do the same thing in these podcasts. Today's podcast is part of our Ask the Expert series, where we bring leading academics to Westminster and use all their learning to enrich the policymaking process. Today, I'm joined by Professor Roger Awan Scully, Head of Politics and National Relations at the University of Cardiff. Although vote share might be going up, at least for the Conservatives and the Labour Party, there is very little sign that identity with the party is really resurging. You know, that old-fashioned sort of core sense of people to their gut or in their heart that they were Labour or Conservative. Roger is one of our leading experts on polling and public opinion, which is handy because there's a general election on. Now, that election throws up lots of questions, but there's one in particular I want to talk to Roger about, and that is this. Will the 2019 general election be the death of the two-party system? Roger, should we start with the, the essay question, I suppose? We are here nominally to talk about the death of the two-party system. That great duopoly that dominated politics uh, for generations is fading away. We're becoming a European country with lots of little parties competing for a fragmented vote. It sounded good at the time, didn't it? Yes, well, I think if you look back to the European elections in May and through the summer, then that very much seemed the case. Across Britain, we seem to have the emergence of four-party politics now, with Conservatives and Labour having to declined precipitously in the first few months of the year in their poll rating, the rise from nothing of the Brexit party, taking up a lot of the old UKIP vote and and more. Uh, And then amazingly, perhaps the most amazing thing of all, the resurgence of the Liberal Democrats. You add that to fairly strong poll ratings by Ply Cymru in Wales, the SNP, moving to an even more dominant position in Scotland, it does seem as if we're in a position where there are multiple relevant parties and we could have a general election with multiple parties all on sort of around 20 to 25% of the vote. It's not quite how it's turning out to be. Yeah, so, so, and this is where I should probably enter, enter a disclaimer for people listening to this podcast a little later in time. Now, we are talking on the afternoon of Tuesday, the 26th of, of November. Now, yes. as things stand... Today, on the basis of polling anyway, the two-party system is looking quite robust, isn't it? Well, we've seen a resurgence uh, in England and Wales, at least, in the Conservative and Labour Party poll ratings. But note, of course, you know, Northern Ireland was always something of a place apart, and if anything has become even more so, you know, the, the parties that used to have most close connections with the major UK parties, uh, the Ulster Unionists and the SDLP, no longer have any MPs and mm. don't show a great deal of sign of revival even in this general election. Scotland, of course, has been for about five years now a largely separate from a very distinct party system. Primarily, it seems focused around the axis of or the dimension of pro anti independence. Yeah. Uh, and you know, looking at Scotland now, you know, a good result, it seems, for Scottish Labour, the once dominant party there, a good result for them in this general election would be to come third. Yeah. Which, I mean, I, I, I you know, I, 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 once upon a time, I was a journalist for the Scotsman, reporting the Labour Party in Scotland at a time when it was probably absolutely dominant Scottish politics, and you know, all conversation took place within the Labour Party. And I, I, I still find it astonishing the degree to which yeah, yeah, that that has changed. I think it's remarkable how little that is recognised 
out, certainly in England. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, a, a good result for Labour in this year's general election in Scotland is probably to hold the four seats they currently have. I mean, that's, you know, extraordinary. In England and Wales, we have seen steadily from the point at which Boris Johnson became Prime Minister and then continuing through this general election, a rise in the support first of the Conservative Party and in particular them reclaiming support back from the Brexit Party. And then more recently, we've also been seeing the Labour Party's rating Mm. starting to climb. In the new Welsh Opinion poll published just yesterday, Labour up nine points on the start of the election campaign in Wales. So it does seem as if we're seeing a resurgence of two-party politics, as we saw in the 2017 general election, when we had the highest Mm. joint Labour-Conservative vote share across Britain since 1970. But... But first of all, as I said, is that this only really applies these days to England and Wales. Scotland has become almost as distinct from the main British party system as Northern Ireland has. So that's a whole chunk of of Britain that's in a sense moved into its own political space. Second, but although vote share might be going up at the moment, at least for the Conservatives and the Labour Party, there is very little sign that um, identity with the parties is is really resurging you know that old-fashioned sort of core sense of people to their gut or in their heart that they were labor or conservative this is the thing that you political practitioners talk about when you knock on a door you knock on the door and you know, they open the door and say no 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 thank you we're labor or we're tory and there's no there's no conversation there you, you've brilliantly anticipated a question i was going to ask you about about identity because do you think that resurgence that we're seeing at the moment, early, early, early days, not sure if it, it, it will settle, but what does it tell us that the, the Labour and Tory numbers are rising in context of this question about whether or not Brexit is now the defining identity? Because on the Tory side, it's pretty clear, it's almost explicit now, that the Tory strategy is to become the Brexit party, small b Brexit, if you, if you will. The idea is to reunite the Leave vote under the Conservative umbrella and claim majority because, as the theory goes in Tory circles, the Remain vote is split between Labour and the Lib Dems. But it does look as if, to an extent, the voters aren't quite following that script, doesn't it? If Remain voters, if their predominant political identity is their Remainism, it surely doesn't make that much sense that they would be returning in larger numbers to the Labour Party, which is taking an ambiguous position on Brexit. Well, uh, I, I think we're seeing lots of voters having to make decisions. What we do know, what has been very graphically demonstrated this year, is that voters are quite willing, or increasing numbers of them are more willing to jump from one party to another according to the particular political context. And so you know, we saw in the European elections the Conservative Party get, was it 9% of the vote? Uh, you know, the <laughs> Labour Party coming third in Wales, where you know they basically won almost everything since December 1918. In the current electoral context, though, you know, voters are having to make decisions about which is the best party to advance the particular issues they're most concerned with. Now, on the sort of pro-leave side of things, we've seen the Conservative Party, which, you know, I think for many practical purposes, you could say at the moment that the Conservative and Unionist Party is neither a Conservative nor a Unionist (laughs) Party. It is effectively a Brexit party, whether you call it that or not. And they have been very effective, despite missing their end of October deadline on Brexit, in a way that Theresa May was manifestly not effective at cornering that pro-Brexit part of the electoral market. As things stand, we're 
today it's something like in the high 70% of Leave voters are currently supporting the Conservative Party in, in polling, is that, is that um, right? Yes, broad, broadly speaking, it depends a little bit from poll to poll, you know, cross-break to cross-break, but it, it's in that sort of area and heading upwards yeah. generally. Whereas the, the yeah. Remain vote, how does The that Remain divide? vote is still somewhat more split, but we have been seeing... Um, some signs of, of the Labour Party reclaiming a lot of those voters mm. that they lost in the first few months of this year, who were the European elections, many of them abandoned the Labour Party, went to the Lib Dems, went in Scotland, often to the SNP, uh, went some of them in Wales to Plaid Cymru or, or went to the Greens. And significant numbers of those are coming back to Labour as the best party in their particular circumstances, maybe in their constituency to advance a more at least a more pro-Remain agenda. I mean, what we saw in, in yesterday's new Welsh Opinion poll is a big rise in Labour support in three weeks. Pretty much all of that rise is in younger voters, mm. those who are disproportionately, heavily disproportionately pro-Remain. That's where Labour is, is reclaiming support from. It's not from the older voters where Labour's support has essentially been unmoved in the last few weeks. It's from those younger, disproportionately pro-Remain voters. Which is curious on a few levels, isn't it? Because... Yeah, there is a an explicitly remain option. There's a revoke option out there. I mean, the, the Lib Dems made that quite big call at that conference in September to say, we are now the Stop Brexit Party. We are revoke. But actually, that calculation today looks like it hasn't really paid off. It, it doesn't seem to have paid off. I mean, I think if you look back to the last general election, the Lib Dems were getting 7 or so percent of the vote. And if you're a voter in many seats looking to try and use your vote intelligently to advance a pro-Remain agenda, then it's difficult mm. to see that the Liberal Democrats are your best option. I mean, I personally, for instance, live in Cardiff North, which um, is almost like the Ohio of British politics. And 2017 <laughs> was the first time the winner in Cardiff North has not ended up in 10 Downing Street for a very, very long time. But the situation there is the seat is held by a strongly pro-Remain ideologically moderate Labour MP, closely followed by the Conservatives, with all other parties having failed to save their deposits in 2017. If you are a pro-Remain voter, it is pretty obvious that, you know, Plaid Cymru or the Liberal Democrats or the Greens are not strategically sensible options for you to go for. There will be, I think, different calculations in different places. I mean, in in other seats, for instance, some of those in the southwest of England, other parts of the south of England, it may well be the Liberal Democrats are much better placed to challenge pro-Leave Conservatives, for instance. But given how poorly the Liberal Democrats have done in the last two general elections, you know, there are not that many seats where they're sitting on the sort of good second places yeah. that they had maybe going into the 97 election. Or I mean, there is a debate about... Let me ask a question, I suppose. To what extent... Do you think the outcome of the election, in terms of bluntly whether or not there's a conservative majority, hung parliament, or possibly even Labour majority, we think that's unlikely. How much does that depend on the Liberal Democrat performance? Because there are, I, I know some conservatives involved in the conservative campaign who say they're essentially aiming for a sort of conservative sweet. There is a sweet spot for Lib Dem support. Um, of about 12 to 14 percent, where the Lib Dems are picking up enough votes, not necessarily in Cardiff North, but I, yeah, I'd take a pick somewhere, but you say Battersea, um, or there's a number of seats where if the Lib Dems can, can advance largely at Labour's expense, the effect of that will be to split the Remain inclined vote and allow the Conservatives, even though they, they may, maybe their absolute 
support falls a little to come out on top um is should we be, should we be watching joe swinson as the sort of key player in this where you even even though she's probably not going to be prime minister i think that is plausible although huge amounts depend not just on the absolute numbers of vote but the distribution mm. where are these parties getting their votes and how effectively are they using them and i mean there was some evidence gathered just a few weeks ago which you know, may be another political universe now suggesting that actually the pro-remain vote might be more efficiently distributed in terms of that where the liberal democrats tended to be stronger labor tended to be weaker whereas on the pro the pro leave vote you know there was actually a positive correlation between support for the conservatives and the brexit party in particular the I mean, if that turned out to be true still by election time, then uh, that would help basically the, the pro-Remain parties. We've seen some of this in the past, for instance, in the 97 election, there were noticeably stronger swings to Labour in, in some of the seats where the Liberal Democrats didn't have a chance, and in other seats where the Liberal Democrats were the clear challenger to the incumbent Conservatives, it was the Liberal Democrats who were getting a lot of the sort of get-rid-of-them sentiments. A huge amount, I think, is going to depend, say, not just on the absolute levels of vote, although clearly, you know, the Lib Dems are down to 8-9%, then there's only a limited amount that effective distribution can do. But I think a huge amount is going to depend not just on how many votes parties get, but where they get them. Yeah. Now, um, again, the other sort of slight curiosity, I suppose, of that remain drift towards Labour is that Labour, I mean, Jerry Corbyn staked out a position on Sunday, it was this week, which some people immediately said was disastrous, that in the event of a Labour government negotiating a new deal to leave the European Union, he himself would be neutral in the subsequent referendum on that deal. And again, if you believed, say the word, if you believed Twitter, political Twitter on Sunday night, so the Friday night, if you believed the subsequent commentary, that was a disaster. That, that, that was an abdication of leadership, failed to provide a clear stance on the biggest issue of the day and voters would punish him. Are we seeing any any sign that that position is reaching voters or having any real consequence for Labour support? I think first lesson we should learn if we hadn't already learned it is don't pay too much attention to political Twitter yeah, yeah, yeah. as a lot of it is just people, you know, a small group of people talking to each other. Uh, I think you know, one of the reasons that political Twitter often goes wrong is that we tend to massively overestimate the extent to which ordinary people are paying attention to a lot <laughs> of these things and the amount of political events and issues that actually get any sort of cut through to normal voters is you know, a tiny fraction of what's we perhaps, you know, those of us who are very engaged in this, maybe think it should be. This is where I should, I should interrupt. As a recovering retired political journalist, I used to write, used to write, for, write about politics of newspapers all the time and now that I don't anymore, I can admit that nobody ever read anything I wrote and it made no difference at all uh, so I effectively wasted about 50 years of my life, but still. To try being an academic blogging on politics then, you really get a... Uh... <laughs> But no, political academics are the, are the new rock stars. You're the, you're the, the sages of the age. Uh, well, poss- possibly. Um, getting back to the point, I think we need to think about the, the, the broader context in which you know, the Corbyn announcement was made. A context in which you know, the first couple of weeks of the official general election campaign have seen the Conservatives poll rating rising, them seeming to be cornering this pro-Brexit part of the electorate. And polls over the weekend, for instance, realistically suggesting the Conservatives could be on course for a very significant landslide victory. In that context, if you're a pro-Remain voter looking to try and vote effectively to stop that prospect, then I think you would seize on almost anything. Yes. And even, for instance, the chance of a referendum in which the Prime Minister 
would be neutral is still a hell of a lot better prospect for you than Boris Johnson delivering his oven or microwave-ready Brexit yes. deal by the end of yes. January. Yes, I mean, as Andrew, your voters be relatively rational and hard-headed and saying, well, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it, You, know, which from my perspective as a voter is the least bad of the options available to me. I'll pick that one regardless of you know, the contradictions of the position. Now, you, you mentioned the, 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 the importance of the, you know, the prospect of a big Conservative win and how that might affect voter behaviour. Now, we are, we are speaking hours before the publication of what may or may not be a, a very important poll, the YouGov MRP poll, which is the poll that in the last general election campaign, all those many, many months ago, more or less accurately predicted the outcome, and yet nobody believed it, including, including YouGov who carried it out, um, who were very keen to distance themselves from it. Now, in, and it's, this is a hypothetical, and yeah, people listening to this after the fact can ignore the next three minutes if they like, in the event that we get a big credible seeming poll saying Boris Johnson is now on course for a 45 50 seat majority how I mean how possible is it how likely is it that effectively the the act of that making that observation changes things that voter intention will, will react to polling I think that is that is very possible and Opinion polls, I think, can have these sorts of effects in several ways. They can have effects on party workers, they can have effects on, on some voters thinking, well, I really don't want those people to win overwhelmingly and maybe considering changing their vote to, to act accordingly. And yeah, that might be only a relatively small number of voters, but a small number of voters moving from one side to another can, can directly have quite a large influence. We saw possibly some of this last time in, in Wales, actually. The start of the election campaign, the first poll in Wales, the Conservatives, a 10-point lead over Labour in, in Wales. Big shock in Conservatives on course for apparently major gains overturning Labour's historic dominance in Wales. And one of the effects that had that was reported to me from several sources that Lots of traditional Labour supporters, lots of Labour Party members, people who were distinctly unenthusiastic about Jerry Corbyn, nonetheless rallied to the flag because they thought, look, you know, I might not like Jeremy Corbyn, I might not be particularly keen about the prospect of him becoming Prime Minister, but I'm damn well not going to let my party be completely trounced and slaughtered and, you know, eviscerated into fragments of uh, of, <laughs> yes. of, of, of a former party yeah. that you know they they didn't think actually they were campaigning to you know, stop the conservatives winning they thought the conservatives would still win they thought you know i want to keep the labor party yeah. as a functioning entity for for next time around and in the end they were possibly more successful than some of them imagined they could be but so i think you know people can react in various different ways to polls in in ways which they become a sort of self-denying yes prophecy. Which, in a way it's a bit funny because if you think back to well 2015 maybe 2016 and uh, and 17 we all just decide the polls are wrong and useless and they got everything wrong and you know, everything's unpredictable and yet somehow we all collectively seem to come back to charting our journey through you know, through elections by looking at polls and why is that do you think have they fixed the problems that meant they missed some outcomes in in 1617 or do we just naturally want to look to someone to authoritatively tell us what's going to happen and Polls seem like the best source of source of authority in, in troubled times. As somebody who works very regularly with with polling companies, I, one of the first things you learn is just how difficult their job is, and uh, in some respects, it's become increasingly difficult. Particularly, the the opportunities to do good polls through telephone has become yeah. difficult, starting to verge on the impossible. Polling companies work very hard to try and get representative samples, but there are all sorts of obstacles in their way. My own view on this is that I think polls are 
at times become you know, become too much of the focus of yeah. the campaign that we should spend a little bit more time looking at the the credibility of parties programs and something which i think certainly gets under examined which is the ability of the team they have potentially to deliver those programs and do they really have a functioning team of sufficient caliber Nonetheless, I think you know, polls certainly should be a, an important part of not just elections, but the general political process, because if nothing else, they provide the best attempt we have yeah. at a sort of reality check on some of the claims that politicians make. And if, if we didn't have regular polling, politicians would be able to get away even yes. more than they yes. are now with all sorts of wild claims about, you know, the public are entirely behind my policy of you know, slaughtering the firstborn or, mm. or, or what, whatever it is. I mean, I think we've seen that in Wales, one of the... The, the, the People's Massacre. Yeah, one of the, the strengths of, of us being able to introduce relatively regular opinion polling in Wales in the last six or seven years has been that it's put a limit, I think, to, to some extent on sorts of claims that people can make that, you know, there's surging support for Welsh independence yes. or the majority of people in Wales want to get rid of the National Assembly or, or whatever. If somebody is at least attempting to make some sort of reality check on those sorts of claims, I think that's a, a reasonably valuable public service. Now, quick, one last, one last quick word on, on, on polling. MRP. I'm because I'm old and wizened. I, I I grew up in an era when I was always told by by my pollster friends that actually you should never really believe constituency level polls. It's just too difficult. Can't get a good sample. People would do them now and again, but they were always a bit you know, a bit ropey. Too you know, margins too wide on them. Ignore them. Has MRP? Is this the new witchcraft? New magic? Have they cracked it now? Can we put can we put our put our houses on on MRP constitu- constituency level polling? Uh, well, it, it's not quite constituency level polling. I mean, it's you know An analysis from sorry. yeah. Traditionally, there's you know a national sample yeah. of a thousand or more respondents across the whole country, or there's a constituency level sample, and it's similar sample size within a more uh, defined area. Constituency level polls actually have quite a bad record, partly because it's often quite difficult to sample effectively within a much smaller population. Also, because often those polls are then done quite some weeks before the election, and there's all sorts of individual constituency campaign effects and candidate effects and things which can can you know, <laughs> make the polls look rather silly. I mean, MRP, essentially, you're, you're taking a, a significantly larger sample across the whole country. You're trying to then look at what sorts of voters and in what sorts of areas are you seeming to get particular swings and whatever, and, and using that for multi-level regression uh, analysis to try and then say, well, we're seeing fairly systematically, for instance, this type of voter or this yep. type of area moving in one particular direction. And if we then sort of, from that, generate estimates for individual constituents it's it, it's a reasonable sort of compromise that takes advantage of the abilities that, for instance, um, online polling companies have to generate very large samples. Mm-hmm. Uses a lot of the other data that um, particularly some of these online companies have gathered on their respondents over the years, and uses that to then generate you know, constituency level estimates for for which direction the the election is going. Last time round, YouGov spotted before just about everybody else was that the way that the votes were being distributed, groups of which uh, Labour in particular were starting to pick up support, was in fact placing in danger this conservative majority yeah. that hitherto everyone had thought we were heading towards. Who knows what uh, YouGov will find yeah. this time, but there is, of course, more than two weeks yeah. still for change to happen, maybe partly in response yes. to what, uh, what yeah. their, their new poll says. 
but it, it, it's an attempt to use various types of the information that we have to then think about well what sorts of places and what sort of people are moving in particular directions and and what does that seem to tell us about some of the things that we've just been talking about the, the distribution mm. of the vote you know who is doing well in particular types of constituency with particular types of voters and how is that likely to then play out in an actual general election outcome but it's not a magic bullet <laughs> now another question of, of polling i suppose you mentioned the, the welsh barometer uh, results earlier now one of the interesting findings from the most recent barometer was that there's been quite a change in jeremy corbyn's position hasn't there now you want to sort of baseline assumptions for this election a lot of people have taken is that Jeremy Corbyn is fantastically unpopular yes. and therefore that will act as a drag on his party mm-hmm. which is also the assumption that a lot of people had at the start of the 2017 campaign yes. and but but in that campaign mm-hmm. quite a lot of people got over that put that aside or changed their view, view of him and were willing to vote Labour nonetheless is there any evidence of so far that the same thing is happening again. Could it and could it happen again, do you think? There is some evidence that at least the direction of travel is the same, even if the journey is not moving quite as quickly as it did last time. I think one thing we know about Jeremy Corbyn by now as as a party leader is that there may be many bits of the job of party that he's not very good at, but what he is good at is fighting campaigns. Mm. Um, he was you know, good at fighting internal party election campaigns and good also at fighting uh, general election campaigns. And we saw in 2017 a really astonishing transformation in public attitudes towards him. We did an event with uh, John Curtis just after the election last time, and he said that in, he'd, he'd sort of gone back over 50 odd years of leader, leader approval rating and couldn't find a similar change in a positive change in a leader's position during an election campaign as, as the one that was seen for Jeremy Corbyn last time around. Yeah, I'm, I'm not aware of one either. And we're seeing something of the same effect this time on, albeit perhaps not to quite the same scale. But um, a poll done in Wales just over a month ago before the election was confirmed had Corbyn in Wales, Labour's ultimate bastion, on an average of 3.0 on a 0 to 10 popularity scale. This is pretty grim. Marginally more popular than cholera. Yes, only marginally more popular than Neil Hamilton um, in in Wales and a full point behind Boris Johnson in Wales. Now, Corbyn improved by 0.4 up to our poll at the start of the campaign. He's improved by the same amount in the next three weeks up to our most recent poll. He's now basically closed the gap with Johnson. Similarly, on our best prime minister question in the poll, he's uh, reduced the gap with Boris Johnson by two thirds in the last three weeks. It's not that Corbyn is yet fantastically popular. Mm. And in particular, he's very unpopular with Conservatives and Brexit Party supporters. But with those supportive of or at least potentially supportive of his party and some of those others on the sort of centre-left, mostly pro-Remain part of the Welsh electorate, his ratings have improved significantly. And as with his party, the improvement has been noticeably the most dramatic amongst younger voters. Now, how far can we say what's going on here is is essentially people genuinely changing their view of him and saying, oh, actually, maybe he's not that bad. I've seen him on TV. He's not that bad after all. And how much of it is people who are faced with that constrained choice we discussed earlier on resigning themselves to voting Labour because they've decided that's the the least bad choice, essentially rationalising to themselves the fact that they are voting for a party led by someone who they don't really think is up to it and therefore 
telling themselves and therefore pollsters that actually, you know what, Jeremy, not that bad. Maybe he's, you know, I know, I know I said he was useless last time, but actually, I know this, this, is, this is more psychology than sophology, but do we have any evidence on that? I, th- I think there's probably an element of both, although, you know, the latter point is is largely at the moment at least going beyond the data but i think we've seen with with corbyn you know he's not seems particularly good at internal party management he's not particularly comfortable at westminster but when he gets out on mm. the campaign trail it's almost as if something you know weight has been literally lifted from his shoulders and, and last time and we saw him very obviously be much more comfortable go around giving speeches talking to ordinary people it's much of this what he's spent his entire really important point that 35 people... years of training yes, for this exactly. for, for for a generation while politics has been dominated by people who came into politics and took the quick route to the top yeah. mm-hmm. when people of jeremy corbyn's generation and persuasion you know, were spending their friday nights and saturday nights speaking to town hall meetings and you know it's a very different form of retail politics to, to what the others are used to yes and and you know I, th- I think we saw like at the labor manifesto launch we've seen in some of the campaigning this week he he's just more comfortable yeah. at, at this and he's you know in 2017 he visibly sort of flourished on the campaign trail having yeah. often seemed deeply uncomfortable with the more formal aspects of the leader of the opposition's yeah. role i don't think we're seeing it to quite the same extent and I think you know, Boris Johnson is not proving quite as maladroit a campaigner as Theresa May did last time. But nonetheless, Corbyn's position has has clearly improved already and may well continue to do so. And you mentioned the, the, the other guy. Again, some people, you, know, you sometimes hear it sort of said or written that actually Jeremy Corbyn's terribly unpopular and Boris Johnson is awfully popular. Everyone likes him. Whereas, I mean, the polling evidence essentially says that we're talking about a very unpopular leader against a quite unpopular leader, aren't we? I mean, Boris Johnson's numbers aren't, aren't particularly great, are they? Yes, I mean, particularly you know, when he became prime minister, he was by most ways of comparing it just about the most unpopular prime minister at that stage mm. of a prime ministership. Normally, the voters give a new occupant of an office a certain degree of grace. Theresa May's honeymoon period. Yes, well, uh, Theresa May was for a while yeah. distinctly popular. She, she was at the start of the 2017 campaign, by some distance, the most popular politician in Wales, which for a, for a conservative yes. English uh, leaders pretty much unprecedented. Yeah. He managed to lose that popularity fairly rapidly during the campaign. Boris Johnson is still actually reasonably popular amongst Conservatives and Brexit mm. Party supporters, but he's become I think, increasingly you know, unpopular amongst you know, people he was never very popular with anyway, which is supporters of pretty much all the other parties. And even before that, I think yeah, he, he was never, frankly, wildly popular. This idea that you know, he was going to transform the Conservative Party's fortunes through his own personal charisma, I think, was always mm. a little bit unlikely. And you know, he has so there's a certain sort of mis- misremembering of Boris Johnson. There are still some, particularly some of his Tory fans, that I think tend to talk about him. They're thinking of Boris Johnson circa 2014 when he was mayor of London and a relatively inoffensive figure and actually quite popular with lots of the groups who now dislike him strongly. I, I think there's not yes, and, quite registered the change yeah. in his in his in, in the perception of him that's, that's taking place. And there's still plenty of opportunities for him to be scrutinised and for things to go wrong. He, you know, I think sort of got away with it in the first ITV leaders debate, but you know Corbyn was probably overall you know slightly slightly the better performer. He, I think, again, just about got away with it in the BBC Question Time, but there's still you know, further opportunities for him to be scrutinised. I mean, it was, it was quite interesting in the summer when the leadership race was on, I attended the Cardiff uh, Conservative hustings as an observer, I might add, rather than a member. 
And it was very obvious there that as soon as you got into details, that he was much less well briefed mm. than Jeremy Hunt. That he understood the issues much less well. And really, when he started to be pressed on the details of issues, he immediately struggles. You know, he's just about got away with it thus far. The Conservatives have to hope that he continues to get away with it for another just over two weeks. But there's plenty of opportunity for it to go wrong. As someone who had the... Um honour and joy of serving as his editor at the Daily Telegraph for, you know, for a couple of years. I, you know, we, we shouldn't underestimate his ability to get away with things, trust me. Um, <laughs> but um, on that note, I will, we'll try and bring things to a close, but I, I will be very unfair and try and press you for, for a prediction you know, that will go down into uh, podcast immortality. I won't ask you for, a, for an election result. Simple question. We've just been talking about Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson, leaders of the two big parties, the two-party system we thought might be crumbling. Which one of those two men will be Prime Minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland on the 31st of December 2019, do you think? It should be Boris Johnson, given where the polls are. I'll say it'll be Jeremy Corbyn. Hmm. Good call. Well done. Right, well, in that case, I, I better disagree with you and say, no, it will be, it'll be Boris Johnson, <laughs> with something I say with no more certainty or confidence than, than you do, I think. Um, excellent. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. That was the Social Market Foundation podcast, part of our Ask the Expert series. Thank you very much to our expert today, Professor Roger Allen Scully of Cardiff University. Thank you to Barbara Lambert for producing this fine podcast. And thank you for listening. Until next time, bye-bye.